What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 49 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Muhinina people on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders, past and present, and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are ongoing processes. In this episode, I speak with Doug Lemov. Doug leads the Teach Like a Champion team for Uncommon Schools, a collection of urban public schools that aims to close the achievement gap and prepare students for low-income communities to graduate from college. Doug is an immensely impactful and influential educator and the author of several books, including Practice Perfect, Reading Are Considered, Teaching in the Online Classroom, Teach Like a Champion, and Teach Like a Champion 2.0, the main topic of today's conversation. I was supremely excited to have Doug on the podcast because his ideas and writing have been very influential on me and have helped me to be much more effective in the classroom. I also frequently refer to his techniques outlined in Teach Like a Champion when supporting other teachers to improve and find them to be some of the most effective investments that teachers can make in their instructional approach. In this episode of the ERRR podcast, Doug and I speak in detail about a vast collection of the most effective strategies from the Teach Like a Champion collection as well as exploring some of the criticisms that the Teach Like a Champion approach has come under and the exciting projects on the horizon for Doug and his team. Above all, this is a super practical episode of the Eat Our podcast, and I'm confident that any teacher who listens will leave with ideas of ways that they can improve their classroom instruction tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month I'm highlighting a new book, The Feedback Pendulum, a manifesto for enhancing feedback in education which has been brought together by Michael Childs, an experienced teacher and teacher trainer and head of department in northwest of England. The Feedback Pendulum aims to explore how the use of feedback has evolved over time and sketches out vignettes of how effective feedback is used in different contexts and at different phases of the teaching and learning cycle. The book unpicks the research and experience and expertise of practitioners and aims to be an immensely practical guide for those who want to come to terms with the diversity of approaches to feedback that are out there. You can get that book as well as any other John Cat educational book that we've featured here over the past few months on the ERRR, such as books from Tom Sherrington, Craig Barton, James Mannion, and Kate McAllister or Oliver Caviglioli through the John Cat website, which is linked to in the show notes. Even better, you can get 30% off any or all of these books with the discount code ERRR30. Before we jump into the podcast, also just a reminder about my recently released book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. Cognitive Load Theory in Action aims to make cognitive load theory accessible and practical for teachers. And the originator of cognitive load theory himself, John Sweller, has described the book as an indispensable guide to cognitive load theory for teachers. Further, Dylan William offered a rave review, generously remarking that, I often don't say this, but this is a book that every teacher should read. The quickest place to get Cognitive Load Theory in Action from at the moment is through your country's Amazon online store or a local publisher stocking the book such as Woods Lane here in Australia or various other publishers around the world. And I'll link to relevant publishers in the show notes. And one more small note, listeners. Apologies, but Doug and I had some issues with our equipment during recording. So today's episode is actually taken from the backup recording. As such, the sound quality isn't quite as good as we usually aim for here on the ERRR. But I hope 
that it doesn't get in the way of the message. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 49 of the ERRR podcast with Doug Lemoff. Doug Lemoff, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thanks for having me. Glad to be on. First question we start with, Doug, is if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Doug, what is it that you do? What's your answer? I guess I say that I study teachers and I write about them and I try to design professional development teachers based in particular on the best among us and the teachers who are positive outliers. Cool. And on what criteria do you select someone who is a positive outlier? Yeah. As much as possible, I started off using and still rely heavily on assessment data. So it started out with my running a set of scatter plots and regressions on, you know, looking for high performing teachers who got incredible results from kids in high poverty situations. You know, they were trying to control for the uh, steep effects of, of poverty on educational outcomes. Increasingly, I try, I try and look at, you know, I think that like, I think that my views about data have evolved slightly and that I think that the long term effect of a school is as telling uh, as the individual effect of a classroom. So I also try and now look for schools where you see sustained effects over a period of time. Okay. And that's mainly on standardized tests? Yeah. And, you know, I think the other, you know, I think we take every video that we watch and put it through the lens of a group of really, <laughs> of really great teachers who, with great eyes, just to make sure that, you know, we're looking at things that make sense. So we start with a hypothesis of like, it seems like this could be a really good teacher. Let's see what we think they're doing here. That looks like it could be causing their results. Let's look for themes across, across teachers who get outlier positive results. What do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? Yes, an interesting, it's just an interesting question because people, I don't think I've ever been asked, which I think is great. And I mean, I guess I think there are two parts to it. There's a public good and a private good. Sorry to go all economic, <laughs> economic thing, but you know, so the private good is individuals deserve to get out of school the things that will prepare them for success in life. I think the challenging thing is that some people define that differently from others, but I would define it as something along the lines of maximizing knowledge and understanding among students and their readiness to successfully complete the endeavors, <laughs> endeavors of their lives, either in their, their work or their personal lives. But I also think then there's a public good to education, which is we in democracies. Our goal is to educate citizens who have the capacity to sustain and continue to foster democracy. People who can listen and sustain debate and people who understand right from wrong and people who can, interestingly, I think, read the founding texts of a, <laughs> of a nation and understand their rights and responsibilities. And I, just, I think like, yeah, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about reading later, but I actually think this is a huge issue, which is, one of the least talked about, most pervasive trends in education in the last few years is that the book is dying. It's fighting a losing, it's fighting a losing battle against screens and smartphones and people, read, people, students especially, but people read less and less and less and less and they get less and less able in particular to read archaic complex texts that require and demand sustained attention. I think it's this fascinating question about the necessity in a democracy of people being able to read the founding documents. <laughs> which are, you know, in, in our case, 200 plus years old. That's fascinating. I haven't really heard anyone talk about the importance of reading the foundation text before. It's really interesting. And I've just, I've actually just finished reading or listening to Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. I'm, I just downloaded yeah. the one from George Washington the other day. And it's like a super interesting story and narrative. Yeah. And 
um, historical development. So why are you so keen on the um, exploration of the founding text? I just, well, so I had, I had a discussion with a history teacher who told me that he thought, you know, he was arguing for students reading only more accessible texts and that it was, was wrong from an educational perspective to force them to read challenging texts or older or complex things like the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but also, you know, I think like a, a lot of, you know, core legal texts and things like that. And, you know, his argument was if 10% of the people, I, I was, I said, you know, what, what becomes of a democracy where the majority of the people can't read the founding documents to describe their rights and responsibilities? How do you sustain democracy? Maybe our current political situation in this, this country had me thinking about that. And his argument was, well, if 10% of the people, the 10% who want to can read those documents, will be fine. I'm not, I'm not really convinced by by the idea that 10% of the people telling 90% of the people what their rights are is a really is a founding documents of the country say is sustainable from a democracy standpoint. That's good. We might touch on that a little bit more later as well. Yeah, sure. This is a question from Michael Pershing on Twitter. What's your ideal school look like? I mean, that's an interesting question too. I don't know. I, I think there are lots of versions of an ideal school. I think an ideal school is achieves consistently great outcomes for all students and has the capacity to execute a consistent vision of that. But I think there are lots of great versions of school that can serve lots of lots of different, that can serve students really, really well. So, you know, I have things that I'm personally passionate about. I, you know, my ideal school from a personal perspective would include an immense amount of writing and an immense amount of reading. Uh, those are things that I care a lot about, you know, if I was designing it from a well, interesting about designing it for my own children. Those would be things that I would include for, you know, that would that would be in it for all of them. You know, I sometimes talk about it. You know, some people sometimes ask me what my favorite techniques are from Teach Like a Champion. Many of them are the writing techniques. If I had an ideal school, I think that every every class lesson would end with students constructing at least one really thoughtfully crafted sentence, summarizing or reflecting on the content of that lesson. And I increasingly think that to go back to this idea that the book is engaged in a, a death struggle against the smart the smartphone that i would love for there to be shared reading i think shared reading among reading started as a shared endeavor a social endeavor in which people engage a text together as a group and discuss you mentioned yeah, that in the book you were like the heart of reading which is like a shared endeavor and i was a bit confused by that because i thought yeah. surely reading is a personal endeavor like, i don't read with other people very often so can you I think it is. I mean, I think reading, personal reading, is often an individual endeavor. I think school is the one place where it can be a shared endeavor and where we learn to see other people's perspectives in books and in many ways are sold on books and reading via the, the social act of reading together and enjoying a story together and laughing about it or crying about it and seeing other people's reaction and being fascinated by other people's reaction. I mean, I do think the book started as a social phenomenon. Right? People read aloud to each other. They told stories around, you know, around the campfire or whatever it was we were sitting around. And, you know, we've evolved to be sensitive and responsive to groups and belonging. And I think that books originally were part of that. I think they're less and less so in schools. You know, I think it used to be presumed that when you read a book in school, you read it as a group and you talked about it with a group, with a group and you experienced it together. And increasingly, I think there are a lot of schools in the U.S. where reading classes are everyone choose your own book and go off into the corner and read it. And I, I think something immense is lost when we do that in school. I, I love individual reading and, and independent reading. I think students should do it all the time, but they also, I think, should experience the text as a group. I think one of the, it's one of the antidotes to a culture where we don't listen to each other and we, 
shout our opinions back and forth at each other to people who aren't listening to each other because we rarely engage stories and narratives and have to wrestle with the with the way that other people see them and the stories that other people see in them and the perspectives that they bring to those texts. I just think that's I just think that that social aspect of reading a text is deeply, deeply important. And maybe it gets to your question about it's both an individual good. It's one of the ways you learn to read and to love reading, but it's also one of the ways that, you know, the public good of learning to build democratic societies where we can listen to each other and engage other people's opinion. I think a lot of that happens through engagement of texts. All right. So what we're discussing today, the key topic of our discussion today is your excellent book, Teach Like a Champion 2.0, 62 Strategies That Put Students on the Path to College. Now, I love this book. It's been very influential in my own teaching, and I've taken a lot of the strategies and applied them in the classroom and felt it's really I helped my teaching to go to another level. So thanks for that. And building on that, I really wanted to give listeners a sense of some of the most valuable strategies within this book, or at least the ones that I've found most interesting and valuable. And also I have some questions about your take on a few of them and how I can improve my own use of them and how listeners can improve these. Oh, sure. So I culled and culled and culled and I managed to get 62 down to 16. Couldn't get it any less than that. That's a lot. That's a lot to talk about. So we're actually going to use technique 30 from the book, which is work the clock which is measure time, your greatest resource as a teacher, intentionally, strategically, and often visibly to shape both your and your students' experience of the classroom. And we're actually going to spend, I'm going to try this. This is a first on the HFL podcast. We're going to try a timed approach to the interview. <laughs> okay, so, that's great. Taste my own medicine here. Pamela. Exactly, exactly. We're going to use a TLAC strategy and give ourselves three and a half minutes to handle each of these 16 techniques. And that should take roughly an hour, so I'm calling it the hour of power. Teach like a champion, hour of power on the HFL podcast. So we'll... never, I've never been in an hour of power before. There you go. We'll see how it goes. Before we jump in, though, you call them techniques and not strategies. Yeah. Usually we talk about teaching strategies. Why do you call them techniques? I think a strategy is a decision. It's what I intend to do. So my, I intend, my strategy is I want to unlock the text that we're reading via class discussion, either in an individual class or you know across the course of a semester. But I think that strategy lives or dies based on technique. You know, does, so I'm gonna, my strategy is to have a discussion, but does anyone talk in the discussion? Do they? <laughs> do, or is it crickets? And do they talk to one another? Do they listen to one another? Do they unpack the text in a meaningful way? I think those questions are based on how you execute a series of moves, sometimes relatively mundane moves that you do over and over and that you refine and adapt. And they're different on Tuesday and on Wednesday. And sometimes they're different with your third period class and with your fifth period class because the strategy is we're going to have a discussion about the book. But my third period class, you get them going and you can't stop them and they're chattering away about anything. And the fifth period class, sometimes you can't draw them out at all. And so I need, you need to use different techniques and different adaptations of techniques to, to make the strategy sing. I'm a soccer, I guess in Australia you call it soccer, but soccer football fan. And I think, you know, in soccer, there's this phrase, you never receive the same pass twice that every pass that comes to you is different and it relies on your technique to be able to play the kind of strategy you want to play. You have to be able to receive a, <laughs> receive a pass with any different surface and react to the pressure and redirect it in a variety of ways and maybe include a little bit of clever, you know, subterfuge and redirection. And so your strategy, your game strategy is predicated on your ability to execute techniques. And I think that that's often overlooked in the world of teaching, which is what I want to do is predicated on what I can do. People need to recognize that and, and train on it and because I think your, your capacity with technique 
allows you to envision a wider variety of strategies that you can execute and things that you, you know, I read all the time about people giving up on strategies in the classroom. Kids never talk in the classroom, so let's, you know, in group discussion, so let's send them off to the corners of the classrooms and let them do uh, individual activities instead. Maybe that's because the technique isn't good and we're not good at running discussions. Kids don't like to do, you know, you hear this all the time about direct instruction. It doesn't work. It's boring. It's a teacher droning on for 30 minutes. Direct instruction does not have to be a teacher droning on for 30 minutes. Direct instruction can be lively and engaging and fascinating and powerful. It's a question of the technique that you use when you do direct instruction. And so that's kind of what fascinates me is the nuts and bolts of how I make something, how I make my intended strategy happen and, and not just either work or even, you know, sing in a classroom and serve students, make them inspired and, you know, love being in that learning environment. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. We're doing it. We're working the clock. All right. We'll see how we go. Ready, set, go. All right. So part one of the four parts is check for understanding. And technique number one is reject self-report. So I'll just read a summary from the book. It's replace functionally rhetorical questions with more objective forms of impromptu assessment, which is a bit of a mouthful, but basically means don't ask kids, have you got that? But instead actually ask questions like which of these two answers is correct or show with your fingers your multiple choice selection or something like that. In terms of reject self-report, how important is this and where does it rank in the kind of sins that teachers commit in the classroom that you frequently see? I mean, let's not call them sins because I think everybody does this, right? It's so human and I think it'd be impossible to eliminate this from your functional vocabulary in the classroom. I think the thing that I would hope to help teachers recognize there that it's an opportunity when you hear yourself say, great, so that's the water cycle. Everyone clear on that? And you get those sort of you know, a few nods and then maybe a mumbled, yeah, that's us telling ourselves that I finished teaching something and I should make sure that students understand it before I go on to the next thing. And because we're rushed or and always pressed for time because we're teachers or because we're just a habit and not an intentionality, we're basically telling ourselves that we should check for understanding there and not doing it. And if I can replace that with something simple that allows me to gather a little bit of objective information, I'll just, I'll be better off and I'll understand my students better. And actually I can, I can make it much more engaging for them. And so I think this is one of those techniques where a little bit is often better than a lot. And I think I write about in the 3.0 version, I combine reject self-report with targeted questions. And so it's going to be called replace self-report with targeted questions. And the idea is that if you can write out three or four questions that instead of asking students to self-report and tell you whether they think they understand, that actually assess whether they understand and deliver them really quickly in less than a minute, you can actually insert tiny cycles of checking for understanding in places where it otherwise couldn't exist. And then if you wrote out 15 questions and it took you 10 minutes to do this, you would do it a lot less because it would become onerous and challenging. You wouldn't have time for it in your lesson. And so the idea is actually to take really simple data data sampling and insert it as frequently as we can, constantly gathering tiny packets of information that's as reliable as we can get. It is better than more infrequent assessment. And so the idea is to be able to drop this in in the course of a lesson and just get the sense of like, hey, the guy, they picked up what I was putting down about the water cycle. Great, let's move on. Or actually, they're pretty confused. And so my first question should be, maybe I didn't explain it. Well, let me go back and explain it again. Misunderstandings are, they're a snowball. The longer they go on, the worse they get, the more they pick up snow around them. And so let's try and catch them early when the fix is simple. That's a good point. And this is often a massive habit that teachers have, you know, go, mm-hmm, got that. Okay. Yeah. You'll never eliminate it entirely, nor should you, <laughs> you know, but like, we just want to reduce it. So and I guess planning plays a key role in kicking that habit and actually yeah. planning the questions you're going to ask. 
yeah, I think it's going to be hard. To, it's going to be hard to think of the right questions on the spur of the moment when you're trying to do 15 other things. I just think working memory and cognitive load are such fundamental ideas for teachers to understand. But if you're trying to think of a question in the moment while you're teaching and listen to the answer as well and do everything else you're trying to do in the classroom, it's going to be harder to make it go well. And so if I write the questions in advance, they're likely to be better questions, but I'm also more likely to hear the answers that students give me. And so I think the preparation part is key there. Okay, cool. All right, we're already 30 seconds behind. We're in trouble. Something's going to have to give here. <laughs> Correct. The life of a teacher. <laughs> I know, right? All right, technique three is standardize the format, which you describe as streamline observations by designing materials and space so that you're looking in the same consistent place every time for the data that you need. So in three minutes, yeah. what are some concrete examples of best places that teachers can standardize the format? Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that because one of the projects that my team is working on right now is we're writing in the middle grade English curriculum and it's built around a packet. So students, they read a section of text and they write their answers to really thought-provoking questions. And maybe there are like two or three questions after a section of text. And the idea behind the packet is if every student is working off the same packet, then I can walk around around the classroom and glance over a student's shoulder and I can see, how are they doing? Have they had time to get to all three? Are they answering them well? If I gave them choice, which questions did they, did they find most interesting that they want to talk about during the discussion that comes next? And that efficiency is the most underrated word in education. It has kind of a, a pejorative, you know, it's, it's a negative. No one's really inspired by that word, but efficiency is really, really important when I'm trying to gather data through observation. If every student I have to go up to, I have to say, great, Holly, where's your answer to number one? Where'd you answer the three questions we asked about To Kill a Mockingbird? All that sort of, and I'll flip back so I can see it on that page. Suddenly an interaction should take me 10 seconds, takes 30 seconds, which makes it much harder for me to get to everyone and talk to everyone and engage with everyone. And in that conversation between you and me, I both disrupt your thinking because I have to ask you to flip back to the page. And so I've, I've disrupted your thoughts about the novel and I've disrupted my own processing of what you're saying because we have to have a conversation. So basically I'm putting an extraneous load on my working memory at exactly the time when I want to streamline it. And so the idea is if I'm looking in the same place at the same document on every student's page as much as possible, I can find the important things quickly and easily reduce extraneous cognitive load and get to the point where I'm talking to students about their ideas. That's great. And another place where it can save teachers time a lot is in marking tests, for example. So something that I yeah. really emphasize, especially in math, it's like if you're going to get a kid to draw a graph, give them the axes and some numbers on the axes so that when you open to that page, you can quickly see whether they've actually <clears throat> done, done what you're looking for or not. I'd never thought about that application. That's what I love about Teach Like a Champion, which is you give teachers an idea. And you're like, oh, you know, efficiency of how you look is important. Someone says, yeah, it's not just when you're walking around class, it's on tests also. And I'm like, how could I have been doing this for 10 years and never thought of that? But that's great. And I think, I think absolutely true. And both a fascinating application and one of the things I love about focusing on technique, which is people see new applications for it all the time. Totally. We made up 23 seconds then, so we're back almost back on track. Technique four is tracking, not watching, which is be intentional yeah. about how you scan the classroom, decide specifically what you're looking for, and remain disciplined about it in the face of distractions. So what does tracking rather than watching empower a teacher to do? And what does a teacher need to do in order to track and not watch? Yeah, this is great. But, and by the way, this is a technique that I'm changing the name of in, in 3.0. It's going to be called active observation. But I think the first thing is to just think about observation when students are doing work in the classroom as data, which I don't, I never did this as a teacher. I would walk around 
kids are working, or they're working, and I would like my goal would be to encourage them a little bit and see whether they were working hard. It never struck me that I should be actually looking really carefully for specific things, like not just were they writing paragraphs, but what was the quality of their verbs that they were using? What was the quality of their topic sentences? And so if I'm clear about what I'm looking for, I'm more likely to see it and understand where students really are. And I just think that we have this perception that we can take mental notes. But if you think about it, I'm a math teacher and I assign students two problems to do on their own. They have four steps each. There are 30 kids in my classroom. If I think, again, going back to what we know about the limitations of working memory for teachers, if I think that I'm taking mental notes, there is no such thing as taking mental notes in an environment. And an environment is complex and with, and with as much data as that. And if I think that I'm going to walk around that classroom and observe 30 kids doing two different problems with four steps each, and at the end of it, be able to think to myself now, what was the most important thing to stop them and talk about? Where was the data? What were kids successful at? What were they unsuccessful at? And who needs help? I think that I'm kidding myself, that you know, there's no way to keep that much data in your working memory, so you have to write it down. The first thing about active observation is about like walk around with a clipboard. Maybe you write out the things you want to see, which is like, okay, I want to see that uh, kids know how to find the remainder and they have their, their work lined up. And then I can put little tick marks down when I start to see success or errors. And I can actually tabulate the data. And I know halfway around my classroom, while wow, there are eight kids who are struggling to find the remainders. When I stop them in three minutes and say, great, let's talk about one of these, let's talk about what was challenging about these problems. I will be talking about the things that the greatest number of kids in the classroom need the most help with, as opposed to something random that I saw in the last paper that I saw before I walked to the front of the classroom. And so it just helps me to be, to make sure that I'm responding to data as productively and responsibly to kids' needs as possible. And I just think like the, so the idea number one is, is track it, write it down, because there's way too much data for you to keep in your working memory. Mental notes are a story that we tell ourselves. That does not jive with the reality of, of cognitive psychology. Fantastic. Technique eight is culture of error, which you describe as create an environment where your students feel safe making and discussing mistakes. <clears throat> so you can spend less time hunting for errors and more time fixing them. What yeah. can teachers actually do in concrete terms to create a culture of error in their classroom? And a kind of addendum to that is what do you often see teachers doing that undercuts a culture of error? Sure. I think this is so profoundly a sports coach in the US, John Wooden, who's reputedly our greatest basketball coach ever, has this great phrase, which is teaching, he says, is knowing the difference between I taught it and they learned it. And I just think that's the fundamental, the most fundamental description of teaching in any setting that I think I've ever heard. But a corollary of that is, and if students are trying to hide their mistakes from you, you have to work 10 times harder than if they're willingly share them and they want you to find them. And so I want to build a culture where students are really comfortable making mistakes and sharing their mistakes and studying their mistakes. Because I think it's interesting as opposed to like they've done something wrong to make a mistake or they think they've let us down to make a mistake. So some of the things that go wrong, I think I want to be non-judgmental about errors, right? So I'm thinking of a video I saw where a math teacher said, I'm so glad I saw this mistake. You guys, it's going to help me to help you, right? It totally changes student perception of what it means to make a mistake. This can be, you know, or something like, I can see why you wanted to divide there. There are a lot of good reasons. But the reasons why we actually don't divide there are fascinating. So let's take a look at them together, right? And that says your mistake revealed something that will make us smarter and more successful. And that's actually really, really interesting. And so I just think that language around not just normalizing, but even sometimes valorizing mistakes is really critical for students. And then I think one of the other things that can go wrong is we communicate an immense amount of information non-verbally and unintentionally. And so I know that as a young teacher, I had to tell, there's a little story I tell in the book about 
student answering a question. And when the student gave me an answer that just absolutely did not make sense to me and seemed wrong to me as a teacher, I would always say the same thing. I'd go, roll my, I would look up at the ceiling and say, hmm, interesting. And that was, you know, I would never, what I learned later that I was saying to my students was, that was the most ridiculous answer I've ever heard. Please don't say that again aloud in class, which I would obviously never <laughs> say to students. But I know this because one time I said it to a student and a kid in the back row said, uh-oh, better think again. And it turns out that you know she knew my verbal tics and my nonverbal tics. And she realized that when Mr. Lamont said, hmm, interesting, what he meant was wrong. And so I had to learn to just manage my nonverbal and the way that I responded affectively when I got an answer that confused me or concerned me or that I didn't like and that I had, that I call this managing your tell. And every teacher has a tell. The word tell comes from it, from poker, you know, where you don't want to, you don't want to reveal what's in your hand. And sometimes we have to, we have to do that to make sure that, because, you know, kids give answers, which is like, wow, where did, there's a tiny voice inside of us that says, wow, where did that voice come from? And we have to make sure that we don't ever communicate that to students. So managing your tell, I think, is one thing. And then I think a very small thing is, I talk about the idea of withholding the answer, which is often our first response after a student has answered a question is to say right or wrong. And you actually don't have to do that. You can just say, do you agree? Or let's take a look and see if that works out. Or did people have other answers? And when I do that, as soon as I say right or wrong, the kids who got it right are checked out because they're like, I got this one. I don't need to listen anymore. And the kids who got it wrong, maybe are wrestling with, how did they make that mistake? I was a silly error. It's so stupid. I always get these wrong. I'm terrible at math. And none of those things are internal narratives that are about studying the math. And so sometimes just removing we're delaying revealing what the right answer is until we've had the discussion and the analysis keeps kids intellectually engaged in the learning process a little bit longer. Fantastic. All right, so the next part, we're moving now into part two of the book, which is academic ethos. And in the book you write, part one, we discussed how culture of error, how to build a culture of error. In this chapter, our goal is to build a culture of better, in which being pushed by your teacher to go a little further is normalised. And the first technique we're looking at here is technique 11, no opt out. And you describe this as turn I don't know into success by ensuring that students who won't try or can't answer practice getting it right. So in two minutes, what can teachers effectively do when a student refuses to answer a question by saying something like, I don't know? Yeah. The first thing you can do is anticipate it and know that it's going to happen. And before it happens, say to your class, if you get things wrong, that's fine. And that's a normal part of learning. But I will always expect you to try. And so if you, if you don't know, I will try to try to find a way to help you try, but I want you, I'm going to ask you to do your best and commit to trying to get the answer and that you owe that to yourself. And so sometimes I will go to someone else and ask them to give you a cue or sometimes after the answer, I'll ask you to repeat the answer and then do a little bit more with it. So I'll never allow you not to try because you deserve better than that. And so when a student then says, I don't know, I have to realize that like, there's a tragedy that unfolds in so many classrooms where a teacher says to a kid, what's the answer to the question? And maybe the kid knows it. Maybe the kid doesn't know, but the kid says, I don't know. And the teacher now is kind of intimidated by that, especially if, they, if the student gives a little bit of attitude and they leave them alone for the rest of the day or the rest of the week or the rest of the month. And if we love children, we should not allow them to opt out of learning in that way. And so I might start by going to another student and saying, when I ask you, to reduce the fraction, what am I asking you to do? Great, now back to you, Caleb. Now can you reduce the fraction? Maybe I can't, great. So then I, maybe he can, maybe I can't. Maybe he can't. Maybe I have to say, actually, when I reduce it, 
I turn six eighths into three fourths. So if I reduce six eighths, what is it, Caleb? Three fourths. Great. Now try another one. What is if I had to reduce ten twelfths? What could I reduce that to? I think one of the keys that I've learned over time is combining no opt out with the technique called stretch it, which is here's another question. Show me what you can do is the most powerful combination of techniques because it allows a student to show right away that they've learned and that they're perfect, that they're very capable of using the idea that you've given them. And so I love going from like Let's say I ask a student, what's three plus five? They can't answer it. They say three plus five is seven. Three plus five, no, three plus five is not seven. Listen, listen very careful, very carefully. Ollie, what's three plus five? Three plus five is eight. Great. How did you get it? Say they're very small students. I took five and I added on and I counted on three. Great. Now back to you, Caleb. What's four plus five? Oh, yes, you got it. Beautiful. What's five plus six? Oh, look at you now. You're, you know, and so I want to turn it into success. But it has to start with the student realizing that they can't selectively not, they can't decide not to try because they're intimidated or disinterested in the learning process. The next one is do now, technique number 20, which is use a short warm-up activity that students complete without instruction or direction from you to start class every day. This lets the learning start even before you begin teaching. So two questions here, one minute for each. What makes a good do now? Maybe you want to dot point that. And the second one is, how does a teacher go through the answer of do now in an effective and efficient way? That's great. So good do now. It's pencil to paper, right? I'm not just sitting thinking. I have something that I can visibly do that involves my writing and answer. And it's hosted in the same place every day so that students can begin it without my having to say anything to them, right? So they can like self-manage it. It becomes a habit. And that's the most important part You've definitely hit on the challenge of the do now, which is the way that it goes wrong is students complete their written work in three minutes and then we spend, we intend to spend five minutes processing it and we spend 15. And so I think you just have to recognize that you may have to be selective and you may not be able to review every question in the do now. I would say you should, you should do what we're doing right now, which is keep a timer running. Actively observe, use tracking, not watching as you're walking around to decide which are the most important problems to talk about, which are the ones that people are struggling with. And so maybe if everyone gets number one, I say, great, you all crushed number one. We don't need to talk about that. Let's talk briefly about number two. Boom. So this is, again, why gathering data is so important, because it allows me to target the time I spend debriefing the do now to the most important places. Fantastic. We caught up some time. Love it. Which is good because we'll quickly go through 21 name the steps and I want to give you a bit more time on control the game because that's a reading one. So I know you're going to love telling us about that one. Technique 21 is name the steps, which you write as break down complex tasks into steps that form a path for student mastery. What are some examples of where you've seen the idea of break down or sorry, name the steps to be particularly effective? Yeah, I think it's when you have a complex process, I think if I can articulate the steps as I go through, then students can replicate the process. And I think this kind of ties into a lot of the research on like a worked example, right? I want to model for students an effective solution and then name the things that I'm doing so that they can be more conscious and more alert of the steps. I think this is an example of the power of vocabulary that once I describe, I'm finding like I'm combining like terms. Once I, I, I describe this, the first step is to like combine like terms, then that becomes a thing that students can conceive of and can recognize what people are doing and see around them and remind themselves to do. And so if I can put those things in a sequence, I just make it easier for students to self-manage the process and internalize the process. And I can remind them of the steps so that they can ultimately become autonomous as problem solvers. 
Totally. And at a meta level, this is exactly what you've done for teaching with Teach Like a Champion. You've named the step. Oh, oh interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's inter- I mean, it's interesting. I hope so. I don't think, I, I mean, I don't think of them as always, I don't know whether name the steps always has to follow the same sequence because I don't think of, sometimes people say pejoratively about Teach Like a Champion. It's a, it's, it's, it's a formula. It's a, give it that way. I think of it more as a toolbox. But I do think the idea of putting names to things helps people make decisions about how and when to use them. And that's the same idea in Name the Steps as in the book, I hope. Totally. Yeah. Shared vocab. Super, super powerful. Save some time for Control the Game there. Oh, we've got a bit of extra time <laughs> with Control the Game. I'm yeah. feeling good. So Technique 23, Control the Game. Ask students to read aloud frequently, but manage the process to ensure expressiveness, accountability, and engagement. And I was I was really blown away by the number of the the nuance of the different things that teachers can do when supporting students to read in class to really keep things moving along. So take an extra minute, Doug, and tell us about <laughs> control the game. Well, first of all, I just I love control the game because it brings text to life in the classroom and makes as we were sort of talking about earlier makes reading a shared social phenomena. If I have reluctant readers in my room, nothing will convince them to like books and like reading more than a classmate of theirs reading expressively and in a way that captures meaning and is funny or is is tragic or is profound. And they see, oh, first of all, they hear the text come to life and the teacher or student, teacher great, students even better, breathes life into the text. And suddenly it becomes a thing that speaks to me. But to see my classmates doing that makes me want to do it as well. It makes it a social and shared endeavor. And I think it makes reading joyful <laughs> to come upon a passage that we're reading together and laugh about it. And then I also think there is a lot of research on the fact that, that disfluency, the ability to read fluent, fluently and the inability to read expressively and embed comprehension in your reading is a huge barrier to reading and not just at the, you know, the primary level that even among teenage students, there's a massive correlation between fluency and prosody, which is the fancy name for being able to express meaning when you're reading aloud and reading comprehension. So I, I just think it, it's working on your fundamentals of reading for every student while you're bringing joy to the text. And so it's just one of my favorite techniques. I think one of the most, one that has one of the most profound differences in the classroom. Because if you can read aloud well as a group, you always have a high quality activity that you can do. If you're a science teacher and you can read a text together engagingly, you always have something really productive that you can do. So what are some of the things that teachers can do to keep that reading flow happening? I remember there were some things like you got, I know at Michaela, for example, they get students to hold their rules under the line to show, to make it visible where the students are. Oh, things like being changing students at unpredictable times, things like that that you mentioned in the book. Right. Well, I remember being asked to read aloud in elementary school and the teacher would assign a paragraph to each student and we would go around the room in a predictable order. And so I could count too. And I knew that I was going to have the eighth paragraph and I was checked out until the sixth or seventh paragraph for sure. And so the first thing I think I want to do is make who reads next and how long they read for unpredictable. And so therefore, everyone else has to read along attentively with the student who's reading aloud because they might be next. And then I'm just going to call call kids and I'm going to say, start reading for me, please. Actually, I might start reading as a teacher and I might model expressiveness and joy in reading and really try to bring the text to life. And then I might say, pick up, please, Ali. And you would read for a little bit. And then I would say, pick up, please, Sarah. Right. And so everyone has to be reading along on their own. 
both reading with an ear and, and, and reading along, alongside the primary reader. And I think that's one of that's just one of the keys to bringing everyone into the text. So unpredictability of next reader, unpredictability of length of reading, and then mixing in reading aloud by myself, the teacher, and maybe even some independent reading. Great, now finish the chapter on your own so that I can start to take the voice that I heard aloud and hear it silently as I read on my own. I think those, I think mixing formats of reading is really, really powerful. And then I absolutely have to have a culture of error, which is everyone's going to struggle. Everyone's going to make mistakes. The kid who most needs to read aloud is the kid who's going to struggle most. You know, this is the kid who's going to have the hardest time. That is the kid who needs the most practice. And so I need to like model occasionally making errors myself as the teacher and saying, oh, I got that word wrong. Let me go back and reread it so that it's the most normal and natural thing in the world. And, you know, just make it a, a safe, loving, nurturing environment where we come to relish opportunities to read aloud together. Wonderful. Now, the final technique we're looking at from part two, part two is academic ethos, is technique 26, which is exit ticket which you describe as end each class with an explicit assessment of your objective that you can use to evaluate your and your students' success. So what makes a good exit ticket and what should teachers do with exit tickets? I think an exit ticket, the goal of an exit ticket is to give yourself a hypothesis. How successful was it at the end of this lesson? One, do I need to go back and reteach again? Did most kids get it? Are there kids who need a little bit of extra help? Do I need to change my techniques because consistently four days out of five, half of the kids in my class have not, have not understood what I sought to accomplish in the class? I think, again, you can be pretty simple with this. You're not giving a test like you do at the end of a unit. If you want something that takes three to five minutes, it's relatively short, three, you know, three questions is good. I would probably want a variety of questions. One multiple choice question, one open response question that's a little bit more challenging. So the first one tells me very basically whether a student's understood. And the second one gives me a little bit more of a sense of the nuances of their understanding. And then I want to, you know, like right afterwards, fire through them really quickly and just do some light data analysis. How many kids got them right? What sorts of mistakes were they making? And I think there's a real tie into the do now, which we were talking about before, which is a great do now activity is a recap or a follow-up on or an expansion on things that students struggle with in the previous lesson. And so it's a great way to just plan my do now, right? I sit down and I look at them right after class. And I'm like, oh, wow, they did really well with this. They struggled with this. Eight kids didn't get it great. The do now tomorrow is going to be a problem just like this or a question like this or a recap of this part of the novel, something along those lines. So using the data is at least as important as gathering the data, right? The way you can make a mistake would be to gather the data and then not, not put it into action quickly. Part three is ratio. So just before we start that, what is ratio and, and why is it important? Your ratio is who's doing the cognitive work in the classroom. And I think that a cognitive scientist, I think Daniel Willingham, Daniel Willingham actually says this, that, like, that learning is the residue of thought. And so I want kids to be thinking constantly and be doing as much thinking as possible. And if I think back on my own teaching days, I definitely had lessons where I was standing at the front of the room opining and working really hard to explicate fascinating symbolism I saw in the passage from the novel, kids were working that hard. And so if I want them to remember and I want long-term memory, I've got to put the cognitive work onto them. And I divide that into sort of writing-based ratio, discussion-based ratio, and questioning-based ratio. Wonderful. And yeah, couldn't definitely in massive support of that. I think, again, another Willingham quote is, evaluate each lesson in terms of what students are thinking about. This may be the most valuable takeaway from cognitive science or something like that. And yeah, 
we've got to make sure that our students spend the maximum amount of time during lessons actually thinking about the content that we want them to learn. And that is probably one of the number one things you can do to ensure that your students take away what you're keen for them to take away. Okay, I just want to say that your answer to that question was much better than mine. <laughs> you, you forced me to do some thinking about it, so I, you, uh, you did well on the ratio front there. All right, so one of the fantastic things, techniques to support ratio is technique 33, which is a cold call. And this is call on students regardless of whether they've raised their hands. And by the way, we're, we're going really well on time at the moment, so that's, that's good too. So why should teachers call on students regardless of or not of whether they've raised their hands? Voice equity. Everyone has the right to speak in class, but also the responsibility to, to speak in class because when you speak, it causes you to wrestle with ideas and causes you to learn. And so one of the teacher's responsibilities is to, is to cause everyone to engage and feel like they might be asked to engage. So cold calling is just simply that sometimes I will take, if you raise your hand, sometimes I will call on you, but sometimes I will call on you even if your hand is not in the air because I want to know what you think or because it's my job to know what you're thinking and what you understand in this moment. I just think there are all sorts of fascinating implications of this. One, one of the most eye-opening comments that a teacher made to me, I was working with some teachers in the Peace Corps, which is, for those who don't know, it's, a, it's an American program where people teach in developing nations around the, around the world. So this was a group of teachers who were teaching in sub-Saharan Africa. And what they said was, cold call is our go-to because girls won't, girls are socialized in much of sub-Saharan Africa to be passive and silent, and they won't break that social norm and they won't raise their hands. But if you cause them to and ask them to speak and say, Fatima, what do you think? Then you have, you've taken the responsibility for what appears to be the social norm and, that, and now it's acceptable and okay for them to speak and two things happen right so they're they think about the ideas and they know that they're relevant to the class and they know they have to engage because they could be called on at any time but they also learn that they are very capable and that they can do it and that they their ideas are valid and worthwhile and i think that the second thing that you know this group of teachers told me was just over time it, it just changes them and this these young women start raising their hands because they it changes their conception of themselves and so I think in some ways, to me, cold call is the most inclusive technique there is. It's, it's a way of saying, I would like to know what you think. I care about your opinion, and I'd like to know what you're thinking right now. I think there are people who, for whatever reason, through misunderstanding or deliberately see this as a, something that's negative that's done to a student, but I think done in a loving and inclusive way. Nothing could be more powerful than telling someone that their voice matters in the classroom, especially someone who's not sure that their voice matters. It's fascinating you said that the students, it gives them confidence and then they then begin to raise their hands where they may not have before. I've actually, I use cold call like all the time and I use pop sticks, which yeah. is something we can talk about a little bit later. But I found the opposite. So I had Bill Rogers come in and, and visit one of my classes the year before last, I think it was. And he was like asking some questions to the class and no one was answering. And he was like, why isn't anyone answering? And one of the students who said, just use the sticks, sir. And they were all sitting there like, they were all sitting there willing yeah. to give an answer and they all been thinking about it because that's what they've been taught to do. But then they were just like, well, just use one of the sticks and then we'll know that one of us will get called. Yeah. Have you seen that as well? I have. There are a couple of things. I think it's important to balance techniques. So I want to call call frequently so students know that it might happen. But I also want to take hands, right? I want to reward. I want kids to raise their hands and volunteer to speak. And when they are eager in particular to say something, I want to give them the opportunity to speak. And so I want to make sure that I'm fighting for that for that, that balance. Because I think, you know, like I've seen classrooms where cold call enough and kids logically like, why would I bother to raise my hand? 
And it doesn't necessarily mean that they aren't paying attention. They don't want to play. They just, they understand the rules of the game. And so I think it's important to have some balance and to, and to socialize hand raising and to cold call when kids are raising their hands. I think this is an, like, sometimes the cold call technique is called hand. They tell kids don't raise your hand. I actually prefer it when kids are allowed to raise their hands, but sometimes you call on the hand raisers and sometimes you don't. And I actually also think there are subtle differences between using popsicle sticks and cold call. I tend to think of popsicle sticks as part of the technique pepper for two reasons that I think, I think it's great and I love using them and I know lots of teachers do. But I think there are two things that cold call does that popsicle sticks don't. And one is that it says, popsicle sticks say, I pulled your name out of a can out of the bucket. And that's great, but it doesn't say, I, because I really wanted to hear from you right now. We're both acknowledging that it was a random event. And I do think there's power in sometimes saying, Ollie, what do you think right now? But like, I'm thinking of you and your idea. And the second thing is that, just, you know, like there's a, a level of strategy that I can use too, and allowing kids, for example, to raise their hands and kind of choosing strategically who I want to call. And I know a lot of teachers say, well, I don't have to read the name that's actually on the popsicle stick. And I think that's true. But I really like the intentionality of saying to us, of a student knowing that I wanted to hear from, out of all the kids in this room, I wanted to hear what you thought about the book or the water cycle or whatever it is that we're talking about. So I think we're, these are taking hands, take cold calling, using popsicle sticks. They're all great techniques. And a lot of it is just each teacher finding their own right balance. That's great, Doug. You've added some great nuance to that there too. In 40 seconds, the common objection to cold calling is that it might make some students feel uncomfortable. What's your response to that? I think the first thing you have to do is explain to them beforehand that you're going to cold call and why, right? In this class, I sometimes will ask your opinion whether you've raised your hand or not. It's because sometimes you bring something particular that I want to understand, or I want to understand how I need to understand as a teacher what, how everyone is thinking, or I want to ensure everyone's chance. And so know that I will call on you when I call on you if your hand not, is not in the air. It's because I, I care about you and I care about your ideas. I'll always try to smile to remind you that it's a good thing. And I just think that's important. My affect should show I should smile when I call call. Asking someone's opinion is a good thing. And I should show I, kids should understand that the care and the love I feel for them when I do that. And so I think that if I explain it to them and I make it a positive experience, for the most part, kids will get comfortable with it and will over time come to feel very safe and secure being cold called. And the other thing I probably want to do in my rollout speech is just to say what to do if I cold call you and you're stuck, to say, I'm a little bit stuck right now, or I don't know the I actually don't know, I, I don't know the answer. And then we'll help you because it's going to happen to everyone is going to get cold called in this classroom and everyone will probably get stuck at some point. And that's fine. And if you, if you tell us that you're stuck, we'll help you because we're a team. Dear listeners, if you find the techniques that Doug and I are discussing useful and you'd like a concise and actionable summary of the key ideas from this podcast, then why not become a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in exchange, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. This month's summary includes an outline of my favourite 16 techniques from Doug's book, Teach Like a Champion 2.0, and advice on how to get started with each of these techniques, as well as many of the insights that you've heard from Doug within this hour of power. This summary also includes verbatim quotes from Doug from the podcast. For example, I found the wording that Doug just used to introduce cold call to students to be particularly powerful, so I've included this introduction to cold call as a verbatim script 
so that you and I can study it and think about how we may like to use or modify it to introduce cold calling to our own classes. Patrons now also receive an interactive transcript for each episode, meaning that if you'd like to find a particular section within the podcast that I haven't included within the summary, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast that you're looking for and listen back from that exact point at the convenient click of a button. So if you'd like a summary of this ERRR episode as well as access to that interactive transcript, go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as one US dollar per month or the average donation of five US dollars per month. That's patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show. Now, back into our hour of power in this episode of the ERRR podcast with Doug Lemov. All right, we're back. So the second last technique we're looking at in part three of ratio is technique 38, which is art of the sentence, which is as follows. Ask students to synthesize a complex idea into a single well-crafted sentence. The discipline of having to make one sentence do all the work pushes students to use new syntactical forms. You alluded to this earlier in the podcast, actually, Doug. So summarizing the ideas when they're in one sentence can be a really challenging task for students. So yeah. what advice do you have for teachers to help do this effectively? Yeah, I think that, so I just think there's immense power in scarcity. When the first thing that needs to happen for this exercise to work is for kids to have something to write about that is substantive, where they have more ideas than they can easily get into a simple sentence. And so if I say write a sentence and I have three ideas that I really want to capture, Suddenly, my sentence is going to be bursting at the seams, and I'm going to be have to I'm going to have to use words and syntactic tools, syntactic forms that I'm not I don't ordinarily use to be able to get all the ideas that I can. And so, making sure that this exercise happens in content-rich environments is really, really important. And then I think I just want to valorize and celebrate the writing and the struggle to write that students do. So maybe in the workshops that we do for teachers, we I put up one of my favorite paintings on the screen, and I ask teachers to write a sentence and I tell them the historical background of the painting and then I ask them to write a sentence about painting. And then we go back and we say, I ask them to write again and this time use the phrase, begin your sentence at first glance. And so this causes me to like look at the painting twice and describe the process of looking at the painting twice. And it causes me to use an introductory prepositional phrase at first glance in my writing, which is not something I would naturally do unless someone caused me to. And then I think the next thing that, I, that we do, which I would do in the classroom, is read a bunch of sentences aloud and talk about how fantastic and how interesting and how different they are and celebrate them. To me, syntax is like, it's a form of hidden vocabulary. I learned to master these tools of idea formation by using them over and over and over again. And so I, I just, by asking kids to write with scarcity, a single sentence in place in content-rich environments where they have a lot to say will cause them to expand the number of syntactic tools that they use and can use over time and therefore increase their ability to capture complex nuanced thoughts. It's one of my very, very, very favorite techniques. And I have subjected the long-suffering Lamont children to it for, <laughs> for quite some time. Good on you. I think I remember reading somewhere, I don't know if it was in It's Like a Champion or somewhere else, about you going on a holiday with your daughters, I think you mentioned, and getting them to write a sentence, a summary of the day, what they'd learned during that day from their sightseeing and things like that. Yes, the introduction to um, Isabel, uh, to Judith Hockman's book, The Writing Revolution, which is such a great book. I recommend that so much to teachers. So happy to write the forward to it. 
because I've used it so often. Yeah, exactly. Judy on the podcast earlier. So I'll put the link to the episode with Judy in the show notes if you're keen to work out some good ways to support students to, to write. Yeah, boy, talk about, talk about a book that's a game changer. Her book is gold. Fantastic. All right. So the last idea from part three, which was on ratio, is technique 43, which is turn and talk. Turn and talk encourage students to better formulate their thoughts by including short, contained pair discussions, but make sure to design them for maximum efficiency and accountability. Yeah. I'm going to say, can you give us one tip to help <clears throat> teachers make turn and talk effective? Sure. It has to be a procedure that kids are familiar with. That's the first thing you have to know about it. But better too short than too long. Turn and talk is always a rehearsal for something that comes after. I want kids to rehearse ideas and rehearse talking about things. So I want them to leave the turn and talk excited to talk more and not tapped out and completely done with an idea. And so better 45 seconds to talk about something that takes a minute and a half than three minutes to talk about something that takes a minute and a half so that the discussion afterwards, their minds are still on fire and bursting with things that they want to say. I think you called that ended ended at the crest or something like that. The crest of the wave, yeah. Ended on the crest right. of the wave, fantastic. How are you finding the hour of power? It's great. Um, enjoying it. It's actually kind of fun. I haven't, I haven't done an interview where I've really gone into depth on techniques in a while. And I love the work the clock. It's fun. I'm not doing great at it, but I'm enjoying it. So. I haven't used it before in an interview, but like, I've, I use it for myself when other people interview me, but like, it's just, it's actually, I think it's really good. It's really helping us to tighten it up. So part four is the five principles of classroom culture. And there's four techniques I was really keen to look at in this section. And the first is technique 45, which is the idea of threshold. And this is meet your students at the door, setting expectations before they enter the classroom. Can you paint a picture for us about what this should ideally look like and what impact does this threshold approach have? I think it can look a lot of different ways. I think its purpose is that it's easier to get it right the first time than to fix it, right? And so if I greet students at the door and shake their hand or greet them warmly and look them in the eye and say, it's nice to see you, and also, you know, say, are you ready to go today? Great. Then I remind them that the classroom is, that the expectations when they walk into my classroom are different and they're higher because it's an academics place. And so, of course, the expectations are different and higher than they are on the playground or some other place. It just reminds them to make, to adjust themselves proactively, and it reminds them that that in a loving way and a benevolent way, I'm in charge of this space and that they are entering a new culture and they should change accordingly. And I think that this happens to us in different, you know, you walk into a church or a mosque and you know that you behave differently there because signals tell you that you've transitioned into a new place. The expectations in the culture are different in a classroom than in one of those places, but people read those cues and it causes them to shape their behavior in accordance to the goals of the entity. And I just think it's very powerful to see the same thing with a classroom. And rather than sitting back at your desk and letting kids come in, and let's say they're just coming from recess and they're shouting and they're all worked up, which is fine. Kids do that. Better to meet them at the door and just say, great, you're entering class now. Maybe I drop my voice to a sort of slight whisper to remind them of the level of voice that's needed in the classroom. Your work is waiting on your desk. It's nice to see you. Please sit down and get started. Right. And that helps them to meet the expectations and to set the expectations for the classroom in advance. It's always better to do it in advance than afterwards to say, we shouldn't be shouting. <laughs> um, better just to, to get it started right from the right, from the, from the first moment. Totally. One of my mates, he reminded me of Thresholder a few months ago. He told me about how he'd been using it in classes where he's particularly taking an extra so, you know, this standard teacher's away and he doesn't know the class. 
Oh, so smart. Yeah, and yeah, I thought it was a great suggestion. And actually, the, the following day, I was given an extra at the junior school, which I usually teach 11s and 12s, but I was down with a group of year 9s. And I did it, and I shook every kid's hand on the way in and said good morning. And I reckon it just had such a humongous impact for them to be like, oh, well, first of all, he's confident enough to be, like, close to me yeah. and, like, look me in the eye as a teacher. So, obviously, like, he's not scared of me. But then also he's setting the tone for the classroom. It was really, really effective, and now I do it every time I take an extra. And engages me as an individual. I think those things go so powerfully together, right? Like, he is confident that he is in control of the space, you know, and he's not going to be the sort of substitute who we play games with, but also cares about me and wants to know me as an individual and greets me. And I just think that's a really powerful combination. Wonderful. Technique 47 is star or slant. Teach students key baseline behaviours for learning, such as sitting up in class and tracking the speaker by using a memorable yeah. acronym such as star or slant. And for those listeners at home, slant stands for sit up, listen, ask and answer questions, nod your head and track the speaker. Here we've got a question from Dave Nichols on Twitter, at dnichols with two L's, E-D-U, and he asks, bearing in mind that you, which I understand is uncommon schools, have moved away from slant as a corrective tool in your schools, what would be your advice to the plethora of schools that now use it in the British education system? Yeah. So uncommon, uncommon does not use the phrase slant anymore, but they still use attentional habits. And I would recommend that schools continue to do it and continue to do it judiciously. We may get into a little bit later, you know, sort of my role within a common. And I, I run, you know, I run a subgroup within a common that does professional development. And there's sort of decision about what happens in their own classrooms. Was, that wasn't my choice. But I want to say a couple of things about slant. It's, it's a technique that a lot of people talk about and can often be like a flashpoint for people who agree or disagree. I'm going to rename it in Teach Like a Champion 3.0, and I'm going to call it Habits of Attention for a couple of reasons that I'll get into in a minute. But I want to say that I feel very strongly about this technique for two reasons. The first thing that it does is it builds attentional habits, right? You pay attention to what you look at. Uh, 10 million of the 11 million sensory receptors in your brain are visual. And so where you look is really important to your level of attention. And building strong attentional habits gives students stewardship of their own thinking. It is the hallmark of an independent learner to be able to selective attention, cognitive scientists tell us, is a hallmark of an independent learner, right? I learn to pay attention and focus on things, and kids are routinely undone by their inability to focus. So when I look at something and I give a student in my class eye contact, it causes me to pay attention to them, and that's a, that's a gift to me. But there's a second and at least as profound reason why habits of attention are so important. And it has to do with the science behind belonging and community. That things like posture and expression and eye contact are ways that we perceive that we belong and are valued and are safe in a community. And we actually don't usually, or we're not usually consciously aware that we are reading these signals around us, but we are always reading these signals around us and they tell us whether we belong. And you might ask yourself, you might imagine yourself in a classroom. A kid is in, she's in a biology classroom. She has an idea. It's a powerful, it's the first time she's ever had some really idea that fascinates her about biology. And so she raises her hand and the teacher calls on her. You could think about this as a station of a cross in her development. Will, you know, will she become a self-driven learner? And as she raises her hand, the body language of her classmates around her they're hunched over their phones, they're slouched, they're looking out the window, their body language says, I don't give a damn what you're saying right now. 
no person in their right mind shares she will never share a thought again of profound importance to her in that environment no person in their right mind shares a thought that is important to them to a room full of people whose body language is saying i don't care what you're saying right now and so classrooms that want to create an optimal learning environment a safe supportive inclusive environment have to be attentive to the cues that students are sending to each other. And they have to, to some degree, engineer those cues. And so when students look at each other and they nod and they smile and they look interested in what each other says, it doesn't just give them the opportunity to speak, it draws out the academic side. And that culture is deeply, deeply profound. And I think that I, it's the hidden power behind so many transformative classrooms. It doesn't happen naturally. In no setting, I'm not just talking about students, no group of 30 people won't necessarily engage in optimal and supportive pro-social behaviors. But if you can build it, it is truly profound. And I would just say that like, there are people who will tell you that building such a culture is coercive and repressive, that you're controlling students' bodies. If your students are non-white, they'll tell you that you're controlling black and brown bodies. And I believe that this is either a well-intentioned but catastrophic mistake or a coming distortion. To ask students to be attentive to their body language and to create opportunities for their minds and spirits, it helps them build habits that allow them to focus and harness their power of thinking. And when classmates intentionally signal belonging and encouragement to one another, they release them from the invisible barriers that constrain them. Barriers that for some students will exist in the majority of the classrooms they will enter in their lives. It says to them, you are in a place where your ideas matter, where people are listening to you. And even if on days when you're tired and you don't really feel like looking at someone and nodding while they talk and giving them eye contact, if you can discipline yourself to do that, we will all gain a thousandfold because we will be in a place where our intellectual sides can flourish. And again, that does not happen naturally unless a teacher causes it to happen. And it starts with these behaviors that are called habits of attention. I'm reading back through Champion 2.0. I changed the name because I think in highlighting the acronym that schools often use, I think maybe it causes people to, to not focus enough on what's the purpose of those behaviors. The purpose of those behaviors is attention and pro-social behaviors that build culture. And so calling it habits of attention in the new book, I hope will help people to see that. I would also say that it's a default set of behaviors. Once you have a default, you can turn it off and you can say no need to track right now. You can keep looking, you know, you don't always have to use it, but it gives you the power to build an environment that draws the best out of students and brings them into the light, the glowing light of their peers' approval and appreciation of what they're saying. And humans are such profoundly social creatures it is such a mistake to overlook that in the classroom that's great so much coming out there i mean you you emphasize belonging a lot and i spoke to two behavior management experts on the podcast tom bennett and bill rogers and they both emphasize the core of behavior management is recognizing the need of us all to belong so that was a, a really valuable yeah. valuable message that came out through your answer there and the other thing that i was really fascinated about by your answer there is the fact that you really centered around like not slanting for the benefit of your teacher, but actually slanting for the benefit of your classmates or, yes. or showing attention. That's a reframing that I, of it that I hadn't seen before, but I think that chills very well with, with me and my own, my own philosophy. And I think a lot of people will find much more approachable, I guess, which is really powerful. I mean, I, I appreciate that. And I think it's really important. I also think that it's important for students to slant 
to give their teacher eye contact sometimes. And I just want to share with you something that a colleague of mine said who was a, a school leader. And he said, when parents asked me why their students should have to track me when I spoke, I explained, if I can't see your son's eyes, I don't know if he heard the directions and I don't know if he'll be able to complete the activity and the learning task. He said, I explained it from an equity perspective. One of the reasons we get students' attention is to give them the opportunity to be successful at the tasks that will help them learn. And so, yes, it's primarily a social function among the students in the classroom, but it's also like, let's also be honest, it's an important way to make sure that students are attentive to the things in the long term that will make them successful. You pay attention to what we look at. Technique 51 is radar or be seen. So technique radar or be seen is prevent non-productive behavior by developing your ability to see it when it happens and by subtly reminding students that you are looking. The biggest question for me here is, this is really hard for early career teachers to do. Like often you've really got your blinkers on and you get stuck with one teacher and it's like, oh, there goes five minutes. How can newly qualified teachers develop this radar and this ability to be seen being seen? I think this is one of those things that you learn, you want to do this without thinking about it. And if we take another setting, sports setting, this is the kind of thing you want to be able to, you want to automate the behavior so that in the moment when you receive a ball as a soccer player, you can control it without thinking about it. And then your mind can be on other things and then you do it every time. And so I want to practice it and I want to practice. I'll just give you an example of a lesson that I saw where the teacher was, it was a pretty complex science lesson and the kids had scales out on their desks and rock samples that they were going to weigh. And she said, great, make sure your scales are in the middle of your desk and your rock samples are in the upper right-hand corner of your desk and we'll get going in a minute. And she was pretty anxious about just all the complexity of the, of the task and in the, of the lesson. In that moment, she glanced down at her notes. And what she said was, if you do what I ask you to do, I won't notice whether you do what I just asked you to do, whether you follow through on the directions for the scales and the rock samples. I won't see it. And in some ways, she's saying it's not the most important thing to me right now. And if she had just taken a half a second to look up and scan the room, left to right, one, to to see that kids are started, but two, to show them that when I ask you to do something, it matters to me whether you follow through. And I notice that will eliminate a great proportion of students who don't follow through. So it just communicates that I I care about follow through. And I think the key there is just this natural, consistent habit of scanning very briefly for a second and change after you give a direction. And I would just say practice doing that. You know, practice, read your directions aloud before class to yourself 10 times and practice the scan afterwards. And if you do that for two or three days, it'll start happening naturally. And then you won't have to think about it anymore. And it will just be part of your, the way you play when you walk into the classroom. That's powerful. Technique 58, positive framing guide students to do better work while motivating and inspiring them by using a positive tone to deliver constructive feedback. What are some examples of the kind of things that teachers would say when they're positively framing things? Great. Well, let's just take an example from habits of attention. And I'm asking students to track one another and maybe a couple of, you know, I call on Ollie and I say, track Ollie. And a couple of students don't do it. I might just say, check your slant, check your tracking to make sure you're tracking, right? And rather, instead of saying, some of you are tracking, just offering you a reminder, please check your tracking. Or I might say, some of us forgot our tracking, which assumes the best, right? That like, if you're not tracking, it would, it would only be because you forgot, because I know you always want to do what's right in the classroom, as opposed to like, some of you don't think you need to track, right? Which is assuming the worst about students. And so phrasing things like, just a second, a couple of us seem to have forgotten about our tracking list. I'll just give you a second to make sure you, maybe some of you are jotting down notes, right? That's even more assuming the best. 
I want to give you a second, go ahead and track now. Great. Now I'll go ahead and say what you're going to share with the class, right? That would be an example of the way to remind students what to do with positive framing. That's wonderful. And that was actually one of my favorite chapters in the book, just because you, you include a lot of scripts in that section and the ways to do it, like, I don't know, assume confusion or forgetfulness and things like yeah. that. It just makes such a difference if you, if you give it that positive framing instead of, instead of those negative examples as you just gave there. My presumption is if you didn't follow my direction, there must be a good reason for it. At least that's what I want you to that's what, I, that's what I want every student to believe, which is uh, my first assumption is if there was a, there must have been a good reason for it, but I'm going to remind you of the good reason so you can follow through with me. All right. So that was the 16 techniques that I chose from the book. And this question comes from Bron Ryrie Jones on, on Twitter as well. What are the techniques that you find have the highest impact? And especially for early career teachers, were there any that you'd particularly <clears throat> add to that list of 16 that I came up with or that you take out from that list? Or, or what, what are your standard go-tos? I really want to say I think it's different for every teacher. There are a couple, I think, that are like easy to overlook and really profound. I think really simple things like radar and be seen looking so that students know that you care whether they follow through just eliminate so much of that sort of opportunistic behavior that some students will engage in. I think what to do, which is just being really attentive to making sure your directions are clear, I think is super important. I think positive framing, you know, we always want to, every chance we get, remind kids that we believe in them even when we're telling them how to do things better. And I really believe in, I really believe in cold call. I just think it's critical to voice equity and inclusion in the classroom. I think those are some of the critical techniques, but I think that it will be different for, for every teacher. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. One of the things that you've done particularly well, I think you're quite renowned for, and one of the things that's the hardest is actually getting teachers to practice techniques. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening right now going, wow, that was like 16 amazing things that I could be doing better in the classroom. And, yeah. you know, the, the book 2.0 and this seems to be 3.0, 2.0 has 62 techniques. How do I, as a teacher leader, get myself all the teachers I'm yeah. working with to do these things consistently and for, not just do it for one lesson and forget about it? How do we do that? Well, I think that's one of the least talked about things about the teaching profession, which is teaching as a performance profession. It's like being an athlete or a musical performer or a surgeon and that we go live. When we face challenges, we can't hit pause and stop and pick up the phone and call someone. You know, we have to, we're on stage. And so... We have to prepare like performers prepare, which is with rehearsal, so that things are embedded in muscle memory, so that we can execute things without using up all of our working memory. And we have to focus on things. And so I just think this idea of practice is profoundly, profoundly important. I had a colleague who was struggling with unexpectedly what she described as random answers to discussion questions for students, which is she would ask a question about the novel, and every once in a while a student would give just a really unexpected off-base answer. And she was frustrated with herself because she would shut it down and she was like, you know, they're reading Diary of Anne Frank and the question was, why are they nervous about sounds in the hallway? And the kid would say something totally random. She'd be like, no, they're nervous because they're worried that it's, it's the SS. Or the stop. And, and she would shut it in her, what she perceived to be the negativity of her own response, she would shut down the discussion. So she met with a colleague for 20 minutes, three times a week for three weeks. And she would ask the colleague questions from her lesson and the colleague would give her two good answers and then a random answer as if a student had said something very unexpected. And she just had to practice. She just made herself practice responding. And she found that with this practice over time, by the end of the three weeks, she was totally able to handle it and calm on her feet and wasn't worried about it and the quality of her discussions 
increased astronomically. It's this idea that when you want to get better at something, practice. And when you don't want to think about something during the game, you actually practice that you practice most of the things you don't want to think about during performance because you want your mind on other things. And so there are certain behaviors that it, the idea of scanning the classroom is a great example. I want that to be automatic so I can be so I don't have to be thinking about it when I walk into the classroom. So I do think there's just profound, profound power in practice. And if I could change something about the teaching profession, I would have more professional development time spent practicing and less time talking about and reflect more time spent doing and practicing. And, and I think one of the benefits of that is also that it makes teaching a team sport. It's fun to get together with other colleagues to practice because teaching is a lonely profession. You walk into your room, you close the door, you, no one ever sees you work. You don't get the benefit of seeing what other teachers do. But when you practice together, you're actually observing other people's moves. And you're like, wow, I think I can do that move. I like that. I like that phrase. I'm going to steal it. Mm, that's great. And so you recommend people, like, for example, if their school leadership doesn't provide these opportunities for practice just to get a colleague who's keen to improve their practice as well and three times a week for a couple of weeks do the drill after school or before school or something like that. Yeah, and I, I think that's the ideal situation. I think you can even practice by yourself, you know, something like scanning. You can practice by yourself for 30 seconds before each lesson, right? I'm just going to make myself read a direction and scan five times, and I guarantee you at the end of a week, you will have mastered something. Fantastic. Next question comes from Bryn Humberstone. That's at Bryn Humberstone on Twitter. Bryn asks, what conditions need to be in place within a school environment for an individual teacher to successfully implement TLAC strategies? In particular, what should senior leadership ensure as school-wide expectations or policies so that the strategies will be effective? A couple of things. I mean, I think there's maybe a few one answer, but I think that clarity and priority about what our culture looks like how we want to approach learning. The more consistent we are across classrooms, the easier it is for students and the easier it is for teachers. In other words, if I want to institute a culture where we track the speaker in our classroom and we show our show fellow students our respect, if I'm the only teacher in the building who does it, that's really, really hard. But if everyone's doing it, then it becomes more and more familiar and more and more for students. And I don't have to say, well, almost all that's how we do it here. It just kind of goes without saying. And so there's power and consistency much harder to do them on an island with the understanding that every teacher will do them differently and should have their own approach and their own style and should not be mechanistic. And there will always be teachers who not every technique will work for every teacher in every situation. And so we just need to be open-minded to that. And if a teacher doesn't want to try something, having the ability to do something and choosing not to use it is different from not having the ability to do it in the first place. So I would still ask them to practice and master the technique. And then to some degree, it's up to you whether you use it. And if I come to your classroom and your classroom is great and your results are tremendous, fine. If I come to your classroom and your classroom is not great and they're not tremendous, I may ask you to try it and to see whether you like it and you think you can find a way to use it because it's going to make a difference. But I think, so a couple of other things that I think just need to be in place. I think Great teaching is impossible without great curriculum. And so I think this has been a bit of a blind spot in the US, just the importance of quality curriculum to quality teaching and the importance of quality teaching to quality curriculum. And so those decisions around curriculum, which are school-wide, they're really, really important. And I don't think it's possible for most teachers, at least in certain disciplines, to be able to be expected to prepare to teach and plan a lesson every night of the quality that's, that's, that's required. It's one of the reasons why my team is sort of writing this reading curriculum because the amount of preparation that you need to do to make a great reading lesson every day is more than teachers can do sustainably. So I, I need to take these off teachers' plates so they can attend to 
preparing to teach great lessons every day. So I'd say like clarity and priorities, high quality curriculum, and then just loving the clear, you know, loving and clear support uh, when teachers enforce the expectations that we say we're going to have school wide. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I guess another question is the book doesn't deal with anything that happens any ways that schools should kind of escalate things if student behaviour continues, like if students just you know, won't participate in productive ways within their classroom. Yeah. Do, do you have views on that? Yeah, I do. I, th I think it's, it's interestingly, the other thing that my team is working on that we've just completed is it's, we call it the Dean of Students Curriculum, and my colleague Hilary Lewis is taking the lead on developing it. And it's, I think it's powerful and important. Just when students are unable to participate productively in the classroom, what happens to them. If they're consistently interfering with other students' right to learn, I have to protect the other students' right to learn. But I need to make sure that they're placed in a learning environment. And oftentimes the places where they're sent are not learning environments and they, they don't develop replacement behaviors that allow them to be more productive and they don't reflect. And they do, it's more of like you're sent somewhere to get a consequence or a punishment as opposed to be taught something. And in fact, most of the reasons why students will be sent somewhere are predictable. You know, if you talk to a dean of students or an assistant principal or someone who handles the most challenging kids in any school, 80% of the reasons why they're going to get sent to them are you can predict in advance. And if it's predictable in advance, we should be prepared for it with curriculum and high quality lessons that cause us to reflect on the things, right? You're disrespectful to an adult, you're shouting out in class and interrupting your peers, you're bullying a peer, I should have ready at my fingertips a variety of activities that can cause you to reflect on that and understand it and replace counterproductive behaviors or impulsive behaviors with more productive behaviors and it just strikes me that like this very rarely happens in schools and so we're we've been trying to write a curriculum to help ensure that the educators who are tasked with helping students who are struggling to be productive and positive and on task have robust tools to help them do that that's really exciting that's awesome I think so. I hope so. <laughs> I, th I think it's really known. Yeah, I think it's been a blind spot for a long time. Who did you say you're working with on that one? It's a colleague on, my, on the Teach Like a Champion team. Her name is Hilary Lewis. She, like me, is a former dean of students. And so she's sort of lived this role. But she, we spent about a year just crafting a series of lesson plans around all the, you know, you can imagine the list of things that kids would struggle with. And there might be, you know, like six or six or eight lessons on developing more impulse control so that I'm not shouting out in class or learning to not be confrontational with peers when I perceive that they've said something to me that I don't like, things like that. So when can we get our hands on that one? It's actually available now. I'm excited to say we just finished it two weeks ago. So, <laughs> so there's some information on the Teach Like a Champion website about it. Or we'll be we'll be very soon right after right after winter break it'll be there. Wonderful. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Is it like a book or is it something people buy, I assume? Yeah, right now we're asking people to pilot it and there's a small fee for it. And we're actually hoping that people will share video back of, or feedback and one video of them trying to use it so we can learn as much as we can about how people use it. But yes, it's available at a, at a low, <laughs> at a, uh, hopefully a, a, a low and easy to, easy to swallow price. Right? That's awesome. And we may perhaps see some people listening who want to give that a go. I, I might even know some people so. interesting as well. It's so. great. Yeah, Hillary's done a great job with it. Wonderful. Why move into some more challenging, more challenging questions now, Doug? My first one is from a few people, but it's it's also from me, and it's around the kind of students that the Teach Like a Champion approach creates. 
So really the goal, as suggested, even in the byline of, of the book, is helping students to get to college. And obviously within college or university, whatever you call it, students really need an ability to kind of self-monitor, self-regulate, direct their mm -hmm. own learning and things like that. Because often they don't have a lecturer telling them to slant or something like that that's going to regulate them. And, and very much the TLAC approach that I sense from reading the book is it's very much the teacher regulating the class, regulating the learners and things like that. So at some point, students must make the transition from being teacher-regulated to self-regulated. So how does the TLAC approach account for this and support this transition, if at all? I think that what teachers have to regulate is the culture in the classroom, most of all. And I admit, I think that you know, what you say is true, which is they do have to, it provides a lot of structure for students. And one of the dangers is that students could not be ready for a highly autonomous environment when they get to university. And I think the first thing I would say is, trust in teachers, which is think of Teach Like a Champion as a toolbox, as a set of things that people use and adapt depending on their situation. As students get closer to university, should they have more opportunities for autonomy and self-regulation? Absolutely. And I think you're a good example of this, right? You feel like there are times when you want to scale back on systems and supports for students and let them struggle a little bit more and even fail so that they learn how important it is to self-regulate. And I, I don't disagree with that. I think it's really important. I just think there's a difference between having a system that you strategically withdraw or allow more flexibility with than to saying, I, I don't need to have a system in the first place. The benefits of a culture that's intentionally designed to ensure that students are ready to go to university is the first step. And then when we know that they're on the path to university and it's clear that they're going to places of more autonomy, then I think it's appropriate to think about strategically and progressively providing more opportunities for independence and autonomy. I do think that ironically, autonomy is easier in a system with procedures. In other words, even like when my students understand how to do independent work, and I've kind of made a habit of it, which is like, here's what it looks like when we do independent work, here are the procedures that we follow. Essentially, they're internalizing in many cases self-management systems, and they're in a better place to then go off and do them on their own than if I never built that system in the first place and I tell them to go off and do independent work and it's chaos and it's non-productive and nobody's learning healthy, productive habits. So I think one of the goals is to, is to use systems and procedures to help students understand what healthy and productive habits look like. That comes first, and then comes the sort of reduction in scaffolding. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Where do you think... The schools that you work with, how do you think they're going with striking this balance? And are they strategically withdrawing that structure and support as students get older to scaffold them towards that more self-directed approach? It would be hard to generalize. I don't directly run any schools, and I would guess it would be a range. I think there are some that are probably better than others, but I think, you know, I think one of the things that happens is high school students tend to announce to their need and desire for autonomy. And so if you have built a respectful relationship with them, they will tell you in constructive ways how they want that autonomy. And if you haven't built a respectful and constructive relationship with them, they'll tell you in non-productive ways. Okay. I guess if they tell us in non-productive ways, we then need to be open and aware to interpret that signal in the right way. Because if they tell us in non-productive ways, acting out or whatever, a school culture could take that as a signal that, oh, we need to start providing these students with more freedom, or it could take it as a signal like, yeah, we true. need to clamp down more. So how's that done? I mean, I think there's no, there's no workaround for awareness and perception and understanding your students' experience of what they need. I mean, 
I don't know many high schools where teachers are not aware of the need and desire of adolescents for increasing autonomy and freedom and the need to be able to self-regulate and go on to university. So, I mean, I, I don't know any high schools that aren't wrestling with the question and aren't constantly thinking about it. And I think that you know, there's no substitute for that part of the process, which is just constant self-reflection. And as students get older, enlisting their and their parents' insights. I mean, I think we need to be aware that everything that students ask for will not necessarily be the thing that's in their benefit. Like there are lots of freedoms that I wanted when I was in high school that were, it was good for me to have. And there were lots of freedoms that I wanted in high school that it was not good for me to have. And so I think you have to listen very carefully to what students are telling you and both what they're verbally telling you and what their actions are telling you, and then reflect carefully, put it through the lens of a benevolent adult whose responsibility is for their long-term ability to flourish. Mm. No, that makes sense. There's another kind of related question that's, that's just come to me. I'm quite interested in. I'm sure that a lot of criticisms have been thrown around about teach like a champion things, the kind of views of it being controlling and coercive, things like that. But I'm sure that anyone who's actually listened to this podcast and listened to you talk, it will be very clear to them what a compassionate, caring, and even, I, I may say, a gentle person you are and how caring you are about your students and the way you frame your speech because you've been doing a lot of modelling and scripting for us today. So I think that definitely directly contradicts many of these characterizations of yourself, the techniques and the <clears> approach. That being said, do you actually feel, though, that, and I guess I could also add, in actually <clears> reading <throat> the books myself, I didn't get yeah. There were hints at this control thing that could be a little bit over the top sure. of times, but generally I could see how I myself as a teacher who tries not to be that way, could use these techniques regardless. But are there instances where you've seen things that were represented or that came from your teaching, your books, your writing, your, your training that you went, oh, that's gone a bit far or... Yeah, I mean, there have to be. Of course there are. Like, it would be impossible to write a book of this length and scope and have gotten everything exactly right. Be, you know, like, and the alternative would be to never try. And so, first of all, Teach Like a Champion 2.0 exists because I put out 1.0 and over time I was like, I don't, I don't like everything in the book. And some things I refined and made more insightful because teachers taught me amazing things. And some things I dropped because I didn't like either what they said or the way that teachers read them. And Teach Like a Champion 3.0 will be more of that process. I would say that they're powerful tools. And I say that not to like congratulate my, like, they're all tools that I've learned from watching teachers. So they're, they're not really my tools. So I, put, I try to put names on them. But powerful things can be used well, and powerful things can be misused or misapplied, either through the best, <laughs> often through the best of intentions. And so, like, I find that, you know, like, I'm in the process right now. I'm spending my winter break writing Teach Like a Champion 3.0, I think. When I started writing, it was hard for me to imagine having to explain people to people that everything or having to clarify that everything you do for students, you should do from a sense of love and belief in them and wanting them to thrive and flourish. And so I think there are clearly places where I did not explain as fully as I might have the purpose behind an endeavor. And I just thought that it would be understood to teachers. And it's clear that it wasn't. It was either unclear to detractors who were like, hmm, see, he wants to control and or off in some cases also unclear to people who believed in the book through the best of intentions, applied ideas in, in ways that are people struggle forward and they make mistakes and with powerful tools that sometimes happens. So 3.0 is a lot of 
rewriting to address some of those things. I think habits changing slant from an acronym, which focuses people on the specific behaviors, possibly without talking enough about the purpose and the rationale behind it, I think is a good example of that. And in the write-up on slant, I also talk about a phrase that I use a lot in training, which is because you can does not mean you must. Right? You, you should have the skill to be able to cause things to happen in your classroom. It doesn't mean only a fool carries a hammer and thinks that therefore everything is a nail. Right? So you have to have the skills, but you also have to be judicious in how you use them. So try to emphasize purpose a lot more and frame things to help head off misapplications by people who want the best for kids because I think that's real. It's impossible. So it wouldn't be impossible for it not to be. Totally. And there will be obviously things that I get wrong in, in TSUC or you know that I get wrong in TSUC Advanced Champion 3.0 and I can't even think about writing 4.0. But you know, teaching is such complex work in such complex circumstances that it's always going to be a struggle forward to try and refine and clarify exactly what we're trying to do and how best to do it. That's part of the struggle. And the alternative is not to write the book at all and not help people solve challenges in the classroom and serve kids well. Peter Kaplan, 12 on Twitter, asks, and this is the kind of final critique question, but it's really, really opening <clears throat> up. What do you see as the strongest critique of Teach Like a Champion? Another way to think of that is what's something you're still trying to work out yourself? That's, that's one, one way that I'd frame that question as well. I think the strongest critique, the thing that I spend the, I'm spending the most time thinking about in writing 3.0 is probably what I was describing to you before, which is the necessity for more description of purpose and a larger framing. I assumed that it was understood that this book does not describe everything you possibly do in your relationship with students and that you build relationships with them and that they should know constantly that you care about them and believe in them. But these are a set of tools that you use to address challenging situations within that context. And that I'm not saying that because it's not in the book, you shouldn't do it. But I think that one of the, the things I, th I find myself thinking about most is there are two critiques I think that I'm addressing most. One is just the necessity of being clearer about purpose. Tadayemi Stembridge, who has a couple of really great books about multicultural education, says, you know, you can't separate the technique from the purpose and you have to technique done without a clear without clarity in your purpose is something that's that's at risk going wrong and i think that that's true about the techniques in teach like a champion and so in version two i've tried really really hard to be spend a lot of time talking about what the purpose of this thing is to help head off misapplications and the second critique that i think is really valid and useful that i've and addressing much more intentionally in 3.0 is I have not done enough of a job of making explicit connections to cognitive science research that I know to be there. And I think we've talked about a lot of them on this call and how important managing your own working memory, the tie-ins, so, you know, our understanding of working memory and cognitive load theory for students and for teachers. And so part of my project in, in writing 3.0 is to be much more explicit about tie-ins to cognitive science and, you know, retrieval practice and building long-term memory and managing cognitive load theory and the science of motivation, you know, social motivation and things like that. And so a book can really be so long. And so I wish that I put those things more explicitly in the first in the first version of the book, but they will definitely, I think that they're there and they're the reasons why many of the techniques work the way they do. I just, my goal would be to make it more explicit, the connection between what we know about cognitive science and the techniques that I describe in the book. 
Adam Boxer and many others want to know when we can get our hands on 3.0. <laughs> it's going to be out next summer if all goes well. I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm terrified about my deadlines right now, but I'm going to try and on my blog post drop a couple of early samples. And I'm pretty sure I've got a got a couple of good ideas from Adam in the, in the book already. So you might get an advanced copy. <laughs> Exciting. There you go. Looking forward, uh, your recent article on Education Next reviewing Marianne Wolfe's Reader Come Home, her book, it lamented the decline of reading, as you alluded to at the start of the podcast, and in addition to the decline of reading, the decline of sustained attention more generally. Yeah. You kind of hinted at some exciting future directions to try to preserve and strengthen both reading and attention. Where's your thinking at currently in terms of this, the place of reading in our society, and what are you working on? Yeah. I'm glad you put the word exciting in there because I think this is the place where I battle with despair that I, I feel like I look at the actions and behaviors of young people and adults and I think that books are dying and that makes me incredibly sad. Interestingly, schools are the institution, the one institution left that can restrict the universality of access of smartphones. You know, they're designed to disrupt our thinking. They're designed to addict us. You can almost not buy a garment anymore that doesn't have a pocket for your phone right? Device always has to be there with you, right? You buy a piece of athletic gear, a casual thing, even like a pair of slacks or a dress, and it's got for your phone. I guarantee you it's within five feet, right? 90-something percent of your listeners have their phone within five feet of them right now. Schools are one of the few places where we can limit and temporarily restrict access to phones so that young people can engage in sustained periods of focused concentration and attention and we can build that habit and sustain and and keep that habit alive for them and so i think a really important question for schools is a lot of schools ask the question about how i want to access and leverage technology and i think an equally important question is when do i want to restrict technology and when do i want to be pencil to paper and when do i want to make sure that kids do not have phones with them and do not have access to technology and are thinking or reading a book for an hour straight reading a book and having a discussion with other people face-to-face for an hour straight and when they're writing for sustained periods of time without their thoughts fractured and the need to to check their likes. I think that's one of the best really important hidden issues. And as a starting point, I think Daisy Christodoulou's book, Teachers Versus Tech, is a great starting point for people to read who are concerned about that. And I think that Marianne Wolf's book, Reader Come Home, is also just deeply profound and thought-provoking on that topic. And you mentioned you're developing some reading packages. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, we're working on a reading curriculum. The idea is it's based on trying to take the ideas of cognitive science and what we know about cognitive science, the importance of background knowledge, the importance of sustained attention, the importance of writing, and the importance of you know, vocabulary, and kind of build them into daily lessons around great books, relatively complex, challenging, important novels. I think one of the other sort of hidden developments in, in reading is that when you read a book, you have a sustained relationship voice of an author and you come to understand it in a way that you don't when you just read text passages and short excerpts. And I I and my colleagues really believe in building a reading curriculum around sustained study of of great books. And so we have our middle level reading curriculum for grades five to eight in the US. We're hoping to expand it to high school coming up and we're just really happy with the direction that it's going so far. And if people are interested in finding out more about that, it's also there's information on our website as well. And you've also been doing some writing for sports coaches. Yeah, I have a new book out which just came out last week. It's called The Coach's Guide to Teaching. And it's 
I had this sideline that I was embarrassed about for the longest time, which is sports franchises and sports federations would call me and say, can you spend some time talking to our coaches about teaching? And, you know, like public education is in a crisis. And for a long time, I didn't tell anyone that I was doing it because I was didn't feel worthy. But very quickly, the questions that coaches asked became really, really relevant to teaching and education as well. And so ironically, I set out to write the book to explain everything that I'd learned from studying teachers and teaching to coaches. And there are just as many things that I took from studying coaches that I think are relevant for teachers. The first chapter of the book is called The Ability to Decide. And it's about the role about how you teach decision making, which soccer coaches and basketball coaches are constantly thinking about. And the takeaways are one, perception is incredibly important. And so I have to free working memory and socialize perception. And this is really critically important for, for students and for administrators. One of the reasons that teachers struggle is because they don't perceive accurately what's happening in front of them in the classroom. And one of the other things that helps with decision making is, you know, is investing in background knowledge and shared background knowledge. Uh, and so the role of knowledge in decision making, uh, in, in problem solving and decision making, which I think really jives with the research that, you know, Dan Willingham and other people do in the field of cognitive sciences. I've really learned a ton there. I just found it really exciting. And so there may be some teachers out there who are interested in, interested in the book. It's got a chapter on giving feedback, right? Uh, it's one of the things we do often as teachers that I don't write about and teach like a champion. It's got a, a chapter on building culture and using vocabulary to build culture that um, I think there could be. There's just a lot I learned from that as well. So it's been a fun journey. That's awesome. And it sounds like one that teachers would get a lot of value out of as well. I hope, I mean, I, I want to I say that cautiously. It's a pretty nerdy, like, it's, it's called The Coach's Guide to Teaching. We do a lot of coaching and education. So I think there are some, I know some educators who bought it thinking that it was about coaching teachers. It's not, it, it's for sports coaches. But I do think it's a lot, there's a lot about learning there. And I spent a lot of time reading cognitive, a lot of cognitive science to understand what happens in those decision-making settings. And I, I think for, the, for people who are interested in that kind of thing, I think it would be useful even if you're not a sports coach. If you could recommend three books to teachers, what would they be and why? Mm, great question. I'm just anxious here because I'm worried that I'm going to leave out one, you know, some, one of my many brilliant favorite books. I just mentioned... I love everything Daisy Christodoulou writes and her book, Teachers Versus Tech, I think is really important or Reader Come Home. I think one of those two is, is deeply, deeply important. I think that background knowledge is, hopefully people are beginning to understand it's hugely important. I think Natalie Wexler's The Knowledge Gap or Isabel Beck's Bringing Words to Life, which is a study of vocabulary, which is the single most important form of background knowledge. I would say one of those two are profoundly worth reading. I love Harry Fletcher Wood's book, Responsive Teaching. I think it's just a great overview of so much in education that's really profound. I think Robert Pondicio's book, How the Other Half Learns, is people who are more interested in like the sociological side of schools and school choice and what parents want from schools. I think it's just it's one of the best education books I've read. And then finally, I'm just, I'm just finishing it here at my desk, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, which is a study of opinions and really it's a study in closed-mindedness and i think it's i think it's profoundly important for everyone in society right now so that would be one more recommendation i put out there wonderful i'll link to all of them in the show notes and also we've had a few of those guests such as natalie wexler on and daisy chrisadoula so I'll, I'll link to those episodes as well any last calls to action or things you'd like people to go away today and do doug love your students and teach them well it's such a challenging time to be a teacher. It's never been arguably a more challenging time to be a teacher or a more challenging time to be a student. And I think we're going to come back from 
from pandemic at some point, we're going to get back into classrooms and we're going to realize that it's been a catastrophe <laughs> online learning. And we have, we have to be intentional about everything we do to make sure that we catch our students up and give them the opportunity to do the, th do the things that they dream about in their lives. So we'll have to be a little bit smarter about every decision and a little bit more intentional. But I think that that process will also remind us of the gift that we get when we're in a classroom with students, that when we're face to face and we can build an intact culture around them that says that we love them and we care about them and we have high expectations for them and that those things are, they go together and they're indistinguishable. And that one of the ways we love young people is by expecting a lot from them and not accepting things that aren't, aren't their best effort. I think we'll, we'll feel like it's a gift to go back to those classrooms and we should, we should embrace and be doubly intentional about the things that being together in a room allow us to accomplish on behalf of students. So I fear going back because it's going to cause us to realize how dire the situation is, but I look forward to going back because it's the beginning of when we start solving and getting better at what our students need us to do. Doug Limov, thank you so much for your time today. For me, it's been quite an incredible interview. I think it's going to be one of the more popular interviews as well. It has had an incredible balance of this practical class. We, you know, we had that hour of power, which I think would have delivered so much value, well, to me it did, but also listeners, especially early career teachers, but really anyone. But also it's been great to get to know you as an educator and hear the kind of philosophy and the person who's behind these 62 techniques. Just before you alluded to the importance of actually spending time with extended texts and the words you used were come to hear the voice of the author and probably the most valuable thing that I've got out of this episode is actually coming to hear your voice as the author behind and you know a lot of people have critiqued Teach Like a Champion. I know you've been under a lot of fire recently but for, for anyone in that position I, I would just encourage them to listen to this episode, listen to the person that you are, that principled person that really clearly comes through and I just love it when when we have the opportunity to actually engage people each other at a personal level on these challenging topics because I feel that it just enriches the conversation rather than becoming a polarised debate where people are, are kind of throwing accusations at each other and not actually not actually exploring and trying to get to the heart of where the other person is coming from and what they're trying to achieve. So thank you for being open today, Doug. Thanks, thanks for being so generous with your time and thanks for all the incredible work you have done and you, I know you will continue to do in education. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it and I appreciate your kind words. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Doug Lemov. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the resources that were mentioned at ollilovell.com, inclusive of links to the John Cat website. And remember that code ERRR30 for 30% off any book from John Cat. Within the show notes, you'll also find links of where to get my new book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week, a wonderful new year. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.